right at the start, a lot of it came down to the actual financials. I understood that if you can get your soil right, then that's what's going to allow you to, to reduce your inputs and allow you to be a, a more financially um, robust and re resilient system. Hello, and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative, and enjoyable farming systems. I'm joined today by Mr. Actually Arable Farmer of the Year, Dave Burkett. Good afternoon, Dave. Yeah, good afternoon, David, before we rip into some juicy stuff, can you just give us an introduction of who are you and, and a little bit about your farm? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm David Burkett. We farm in Leeston and Canterbury on the Canterbury Plains. Um, we're about 40k south of Christchurch. We're in a catchment which is, includes the Selwyn River and, and Te Waihora or Lake Ellesmere. So we've got a number of um, environmental challenges around us. So yeah, I guess our farming system is a arable system. So we grow largely crops and a lot of those crops for seed. Uh, we're a fully irrigated farm, but in any given year, we generally only irrigate uh, 60 odd percent uh, just due to our rotation and, and some of our more resilient crops. And we grow quite a range of crops. So from our commodity stuff to wheats and barleys, um, ryegrass and white clover for seed, uh, peas and beans for uh, both processing and seed, and also some uh, hybrid vegetable seed as well. So some high value stuff like radish and broccoli. So yeah, a real, a real. I guess you could say we're multi-species, but in, but in separate crops. <laughs> yeah, multi-factor arable farming, plenty of diversity there. So what does a man have to do to get the award for arable farmer of the year? Well, you really have to ask the judges about that. But um, I think it's probably a little bit of the way in which we farm. So we we don't farm probably to the norm. We um a little bit outside the square. And obviously that includes using the, the regen um, principles in our farming system. So I think I think that's part of it. It's recognizing that um, our systems need to change and that that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to develop a farming system that solves some of the problems we're facing and but but also allows us to still be a, a profitable and sustainable farm um, uh, while while achieving those environmental outcomes. And I guess the other part of it, I do a lot of work within our industry um, from a governance and management point of view as well. And that's been over a number of years. So it's, it's probably a little bit of recognition of both the way in which we farm, uh, but and also a little bit of um, contribution to the industry as well. What do you have to do to get the confidence to start playing with different systems and different techniques, especially with high value crops like radish? Yeah, good question, John. It does come down to confidence. If you're going to do something, it's a bit like anything. If you're going to do it, you can do it half-heartedly and you often get a half-hearted result or you can have confidence and, and do it. And for me, and everyone's different, I guess, but um, for me, the way I get confidence is, is through knowledge. So understanding what I'm trying to achieve, um, what the outcome I want to do, and what are the key components that I need to change or adapt to achieve that. So... Yeah, to me, it's the key part of it is, is knowledge. And when you get that knowledge and it works, then that gives you the confidence. And um, once you've got a little bit of confidence, it's like, like a lot of things, it tends to grow and you tend to be a little bit more adventurous with the next thing that you do on the farm or in the farm system. 
Um, so quite often that very first step you make in changing your farm system or adapting um, is the hard one. And if you can get it right and get it right the first time and have a good result, then quite often you're on your way and you know, the, the momentum starts and it becomes easier and easier from then on. But yeah, that first hurdle can be quite a challenging one for people. And um, so yeah, do, do get the information you need for that first step change you do in your farm system. And um, yeah, I think that would really be a good stepping stone for moving ahead and making other changes in the system. What's it been like being a bit of a pioneer in a space where there hasn't been a whole lot of, I know there's been a handful of people, but really, you know, we're sport for choice now for those that have taken their second, third, fourth step, you know, they've got a few runs on the board, but I'd imagine back in the, you know, the, the, when you first started playing, there weren't a whole lot of people doing what you were, you know, now doing on your place. How do you go about sort of starting the understanding and the basic knowledge and then adapting it to your farm? Does it involve a lot of historic understanding of your specific farming context? Um, talk us through how to make it suit you. Yeah, I think there is a little bit of historic um, understanding that goes on there. Um, you know, why, why are we in this position now? What have we been doing that wasn't necessarily wrong, but at the time, that was what we knew. You know, I think it's, it's really important we recognise knowledge um, changes. And, um, you know, the reason we're able to do a lot of things now is because we know more uh, from a science point of view, and we also have new tools, new um, equipment, um, techniques, which allow us to do some of the approaches we do now. And, you know, a perfect example of that's um, drilling technology. You know, previously there weren't a lot of drills that allowed us to drill through cover crops and and um, get established into a lot of residues. Whereas whereas now there's there's a multitude out there. Um, so yeah, I guess it's I've always understood that the soil was the key. You know, at the heart of the whole farming system is our soil. So that was always been the centre of what I do. And um, and once you've got that in your head, then it's the variations that come from that and the way in which you. Um, you can gather information. But in those early years, it was quite tough to, to gather information because quite often you're doing it on your own back. And, you know, we're really lucky now that we've got um, organisations like Coral Sense to, to feed off each other. And, um, you know, when you find someone like-minded people, and we're lucky in this district that there's a number of us who are, are like-minded, and we were able to feed off each other and learn at a, a really um, faster rate than what we would have as individuals. So, yeah, that's, that was probably um, a real key moment is when we, when we essentially discovered each other and um, kicked off that, the speed in which we could learn it. Whereas previously, it was slow. You know, it was slow learning. And also the results were quite slow as well. Um, but, it's, but, you know, now we're starting to really see the, the results of the soil and, and changes in the system really um, speeding up. Yeah, I guess reaping the benefits from all those years of, of looking after the soil. Before we go into some of your specific practices on farm, was there any moment, you know, other than being in a sensitive area with the lake and, and with the Selwyn River, um, was there any other reason or moment or trigger that had you looking in this direction in the beginning? Right at the start, a lot of it came down to the actual financials. You know, you know right at the beginning, you, you, I understood that if you can get your soil right, then that's what's going to allow you to, to reduce your inputs and allow you to be a, a more financially uh, robust and re resilient system. 
so you know I, I guess right at the beginning that was sort of one of the triggers was I could see back then that we were heading into the system where inputs were just going to keep going up and up and that's how people were going to drive their um their production system and um you know I I, I guess I picked on it quite early that that wasn't going to be sustainable forever we'd get to a point where it just simply didn't stack up anymore so yeah that was probably it is you know how can I still produce at a high level because that's one of my principles is that um, I don't want to see a reduction in, in production um, I hate this I hate the saying oh you know yield is yield is king I hate it but um, when you crunch all the numbers yields an important part of what we do and um, so anything I design in the system I make sure that if I'm doing it, I'm at least maintaining our, our level where we are. And um, and if I can do it cheaper, then, you know, financially, you're better off. Um, and so is the environment as well. So, um, yeah, I guess right at the beginning was was a, based around that financial. But the other light bulb moment that's probably happened through my journey is, is was cover crops and just understanding that they are far more quicker than at, at building soil and the residues we've been incorporating for 20-odd years. Um, you know, if I'd, if I'd known that cover crops were the fastest way of doing it and we'd been doing it for 20-odd years, it'd be interesting to see where the soil was now. But, um, yeah, that's the things you learn along the way and um, that's all part of the journey. So so they're probably the two key things that have happened is, you know, understanding that we couldn't do what we're doing and we need to find a, a financially better way and, and the cover, whole cover crop, understanding cover crops and their potential to deliver for us as a system. Yeah, I love your use of the term. It's a new one for me, financially robust. That's a really great term. I'm going to use that one if you don't mind going forward. Um, the idea that, and you hear it a lot, people saying, oh, but, you know, we're, we're going to have a have a drop in, in yield. We're going to have a drop in production as like the, you know, one of the primary stops for a lot of people, especially in the, in the you know, high value seed um, market or, or industry. What would you say to that? Yeah, look, I think you've got to look at it in the context. Um, you know, and that quite often that drop in yield is because there's a there's a time in the growing point of that crop where it's it's deficient or it's, it's you know, and it might be because you've incorporated a lot of residue or and and what that's about is you just need to understand what's driving that reduction in yield. You know, is it because there's there's a there's a slight lack of end because you've incorporated a whole pile of residue? And if it is then, you know, it's not a bad thing to rectify those short-term um, problems. And it doesn't take much. So maybe that crop did need a little bit of end, but only for a short, a short bit and for a short amount of time. And then it became self, self-containing self again after that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things in farming that I've found that I find that I'm doing and I know are detrimental to the overall what I'm aiming for, but it's also the right thing to do for that specific crop. So I think that's really important for people to understand is that sometimes you have to take a step backwards or do something that you know is not really in line with your thinking. Um, and But if as long as you're still going on that trajectory um, into the future, um, achieving what you want to achieve, you know, sometimes those steps back, um, you know, might, that might be the thing that makes that a viable crop versus a, a failure. And, um, you know, don't ever think that, you know, because you're doing something that's, um, against what you're trying to achieve, that's don't that's not a failure. That's actually just protecting the, the asset you've invested in for that crop. For sure. 
And what do you do for monitoring, David? Do you like how do you monitor? What are some tools that you use or methods that you use to make sure your crops are getting what they need? I'm a very um, visual person. Um, so from a soil point of view, just visual for soil assessments. Um, we, we are now in a program of um, when we soil test doing organic matter levels in all, all paddocks. And um, yeah, they're coming back really quite, quite pleased with the way they're looking. So that gives us some baselines from a soil perspective. Um, plant health wise, um, generally we don't see a lot of deficiencies. Um, and maybe that's because we've got a reasonably balanced soil. Uh, we're reasonably heavy soil types. So um, we probably don't see some of the deficiencies you might see in a, in a lighter soil type, such as um, manganese and things. Generally, if there's a deficiency, then uh, we try and work it out. So there might be some leaf testing potentially, um, but we don't really have a lot of deficiencies that come through. And as far as, you know, disease and pest, just monitoring. So, you know, going out, understanding. There's a few tools out there in the industry now around uh, aphid numbers, aphid traps, um, keeping an eye on them. And it gives you an idea of what the, the general population is doing um, around, around the country. Um, and disease-wise, it's really, you know, understanding what types of weather events or weather conditions are going to induce certain types of disease to look out for. So, you know, we know if it's um, damp and we're going to see mildews and, and septorias in our cereals, whereas if it's hot and dry, we're going to see uh, things like rust. So it's, once again, it comes back to, I guess, that knowledge of understanding what um, conditions like, what diseases like certain conditions, but you, you can't beat monitoring, you know, just being out, out in the crops, having a quick look at it, and it might only be two or three minutes getting in that crop, having a walk around, um, just looking, see what um, pests are there, and, and beneficials as well. You know, quite often you walk into a paddock and there's a number of beneficials there, and you know, straight away you can probably go, yep, no, I don't even probably need to go any further. There's a, there's a whole pile of um, good fellas here doing the job for me. And for those people that don't know or perhaps have never heard of the term beneficials, what are we talking about? Well, they can be a lot of things. Um, you know, for, uh, for likes of slugs, it, it might be um, carob beetles. Um, there's a number of things that eat slugs, um, even some birds. Um, and for insects, you know, it might be things like lace wings. Um, there's a number of beneficials that live in the fringes of your fields, um, fence lines, and um, and yeah, they you know if you're not using a lot of insecticides, which we've dropped a considerable amount out now. In fact, you know we're just about at the point where I think we can do a wheat crop now without any. Um, where we were one last year, and um, so yeah, it's understanding just. Once again, it's, it's, it's the knowledge of knowing what, what you should be looking for. And um, if they're there and you can't find any aphids or other predators that you're after, then the, the chances are that those beneficials are, are tidying it up or at least keeping those numbers to a level where they're under control and, and there is no real benefit in applying any protection to it. So it's really about balance. You, you're looking for things that are going to eat other things that would normally be um, without the predators or the beneficials that, that, you know, dominate or get out of control. I saw um, recently a, a beautiful photo of a concrete post just here in Canterbury with about four or five ladybugs on it or ladybirds. And uh, 
each of them had an aphid in its mouth. Do you think, you know, for a lot of people, perhaps they're calendar-based, does that still come into your program uh, around treatments or is it purely based off specific year-on-year monitoring before you take action? The calendar one's interesting. From an um, insect point of view, it's um, it's not so much the case um, because insects you can visually see when they start to build up. The, the challenge I have is actually from uh, in the disease part of our management where inoculum's there, but unless you start getting a microscope out um, to understand what stage that inoculum's at, then you won't know um, if that outbreak is going to happen until you start to see spores on the leaf. So the disease is one that I, I probably struggle with a little bit um, because it, you know it's an unseen development of it. And, and that's the one where you know sometimes the calendar does come into play because we know that the inocu- the um, incubation period of some of those um, diseases, we know that you know some of them are around the 20 to 25 days. And so if you're not seeing anything, or you've you have had to apply uh, something, then you you know you know that you've got a period of time. Um, so that's where the calendar I find is is still useful, just understanding what the incubation of those period of those um, spores are until they start to express themselves. And it might be that the weather conditions to you know a week prior to that point on the calendar becomes hot and dry and, and cleans it up anyway. Um, mm. you know, the weather's a fantastic. Uh, beneficial essentially you know we think sort of think of weather as just the weather but um the right weather conditions at the right time can do a a huge amount for protection of our crops so you know that's that's it's almost another tool really when you think about it um particularly from a disease point of view anyway and as far as the products you're using have you are you still using the same products when you're talking about disease and and insects talk us through um, changes and and what's available and what you're using. Yeah, we're we've we've tri- done a number of trials using biologicals and um, and they work really well at times and and other times they're um, not as well. They're not as consistent, I guess, as a, as an ag chem. But um, when there's times when you know you're not needing, there's not a high pressure. You just really need that protection. That's that's where they um, can be really quite useful. And even in the ag chems, when I am using ag chems, uh, there's a number of new ones out which potentially are, well, they are actually biologicals, but the, the companies don't want to call them biologicals because it has a stigma, essentially, that people think they won't work as well as a normal ag chem. Whereas, you know, some of the new chemistries which are biologically based, uh, you know, more as efficient or not more efficient than the current um, synthetic ag chem. So they're the ones I seem to... to to go towards if I do need to use AGM, which are the ones that are safer? Um, you know, uh, are they a, a biologically driven uh, or approach in that chemistry? And you know, there are more and more of them coming on the market. Um, yeah, sometimes it's quite hard to understand which ones are, are the right ones to use because you know, quite often the C, the AGM companies don't actually say that they are a, a like for like biological. But um, yeah, if you if you can find that information out and understand which ones are the, the softer ones and the ones that are more natural, then, um, yeah, they're the ones I tend to, to head towards. And is that just your, your good old Novakim manual or are you going online or what's the sort of source of your research for those products? 
Yeah, look, I the Novakim manual to a degree. I do a lot of trial work for Edkim companies as well, and so I'm, I'm probably um, working with them during the development stage of some of these chemicals. So um, understanding the initial stages of it. So I guess I picked that information up um, at that point, but um, and also get to see just how effective they are against the other um, other Edkim in the trials. So um, gives you and that's once again that gives you the confidence to to use them. Um, to know that they are as good, if not better, than what we currently have. So, but it is, I think that's one of the big challenges is, is getting that type of information out. You know, how do I find out which um, ad chems are, are better if I'm, I'm going to have to use them? And um, that can be a challenge. But I guess at the end of the day, you can just ask your reps or even the, the ad chem companies, you know, they, they're there to, um, that's their role. And, um, and you know, you might just want to um, phrase the question, you know, which of these chem ad chems is um, you know, a bit more friendlier for friendlier for the um, crop and also for the environment that you're putting it on in. Um, you know, some some people will know and some won't. But um, yeah, it is a. I think it will come. There will come a day when the ad chem companies and the name biological will be less um, stigmatized, and you know, they will actually put the fact that it is a biologically based um, ad chem on there and um, that, that'll be a great day when that happens mm. um, yeah just at the moment we're not seeing it where do cover crops come in yeah well they're interesting because because we um, grow a lot of seed um, in our system we we've got to be quite careful that we don't contaminate our paddocks and just while we're talking about that it's also not just your paddocks you need to be careful that you're not contaminating there's also the the risk of um, if your cover crop flowers that it could have cross-pollinate with um, neighbours around you who may be growing um, crops that, are, that can cross-pollinate with your cover crops. So, yeah, that's something to be really mindful of. Um, and it depends on your situation, but in a in an arable situation, you don't want your cover crops to seed anyway, because once a crop goes to seed, essentially the roots have finished doing their work. They're, you know, it's, it's putting all its energy up into the seed. And the work of the roots, and that's the reason why we're growing the cover crops, has, has really finished. So, you know, a bit of advice if you're arable farming is, if, you know, if you've got a cover crop and it starts to go to seed, you know, I've had to terminate cover crops earlier than I'd like simply for that reason. But they've done the job they were doing, um, and that's what I was after. So they'd achieved what we need to achieve. And quite often, if you're terminating, then you're putting a lot of that residue back into the ground anyway, which is all going to be beneficial um, to, the, to the soil eventually. Because we grow a lot of seed crops, we're mindful of not putting seeds into the cover mix, which would contaminate the ground for those future seed crops. So that really does limit us to a number of, a small number of um, varieties or crops that we can put in. So most of our cover crops are based around an oat, um, great fibrous root, um, quick feed, and um, and we also graze most of our cover crops as well. So we try to graze about two thirds and return a third, um, depending on what the following crop is. Other things we put in there, um, sometimes we'll use um, buckwheat for cilia. Um The other one we do is we grow broad beans for seed and sometimes post, or generally every time post broad beans, we um, disc those beans in and we'll put a, a cover crop in so we'll have beans in that cover crop because of the beans that were on the ground after harvest 
Um, and what we did this year, so this last year, obviously fertilizer costs going through the roof. What we decided to do is that we wouldn't put the oats for celia and buckwheat in, we just grew beans. And the reason for that was we wanted to maximize the amount of N we could get out of that cover crop for our following wheat crop. And we did that in a group because we had a wet summer, it was, you know, it was waist high. We dissed the whole lot in and the assessment, well, the mass budget we've done for N is that there's enough nitrogen in that soil for a 15 tonne crop a week. So I'm going to do a zero end strip and um, we'll see what we, we end up with. But um, every time we've done that same approach of um, doing zero end strips, we've hit the target yield that we wanted to hit. So um, yeah, it, it works it works pretty well. And, and that's exactly what plant and food are now doing. It's, uh, I saw a presentation the other day and they're basically, um, They've got some bit more science behind it than, than my numbers. My numbers are based on um, just experience. But uh, yeah, it's, it seems to work really well. And, and I guess the other thing is that on our soil type, we generally don't have a lot of leaching just because of our heavier soil type and our clay underneath us. So if you're on a lighter soil type, then you, you obviously need to factor in just what might, might drop out the bottom in a wet winter like we've, like we've just had. So that bean crop, you didn't plant any beans. It was all just a secondary strike from what didn't go into the header. Yeah, maybe I should have made a better job of harvesting them. <laughs> um, but you're right. Yeah, and it's it didn't look they didn't look that thick on the ground, but um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really tidy cover crop and a significant amount of and the nodulation and that's so that's during the summer. So we're harvesting in in January, and that's something I've learned as well is that those summer months if you've got ability to irrigate or grow a cover crop during those summer months what you can achieve in in six to eight weeks is quite significant just because of the soil temperature um, and also if you do have legumes in there the nodulation during warmer temperatures is significantly greater too so um, you know previously you know we might have had a six week eight week period and after early harvest that we wouldn't do anything well now I tend to grow something in that period because it's the fastest growing period of the year that we have. So why would you waste the fastest growing period? You know, we tend to grow cover crops during the winter period, but um, you know, that's almost self-defeating because you can, you're growing them in the coldest phase of the year. So that's something I've picked up is that you don't need a long window during those hot months, as long as you've got access to water. Um, yeah. And uh but obviously, as you as you get into autumn, you know you some, you need to take those crop cover crops longer and longer to get the the benefit out of them. And what does it look like going from cover crop into cash crop? You talked a bit about incorporating some residue and grazing a bit. Um, talk us through um, different situations and timings, and particularly in methods around termination. Yeah, termination. We we use glyphosate. Um, we don't use as much as we used to. Um, so when we're, you know, probably previous to, previously we'd probably use a glyphosate post-harvest, whereas now if we're doing a cover crop, we don't terminate, uh, we don't glyphosate, we just put the cover crop straight in and, and what comes up becomes a part of the cover crop. So, you know, whether there's weeds um, coming up there, they're just another variation in the cover crop to me. Um, they're not, they're, yeah, I guess that gives us some of uh, the diversity in our cover crop mix. Um, and once again, as, as long as we don't let that weed seed, then it's doing a job. I've also removed that weed um, seed from the seed bank in our soil, um, which is what we're trying to achieve as well. 
So, you know, there's benefits all the way around. Um, so now we generally only have to glyphosate once a year, and that's really to terminate the cover crop so we can get that cash spring crop in. It varies depending on what the following crop is. So if it's something like uh, peas, you know, we can leave a fair amount of residue there and just direct drill straight through, um, no problems. If it's a smaller seed crop, um, it might be something like um, a radish or something where we need a bit better, a bit better um, seed bed, then quite often we'll just graze it a bit harder. Um, instead, of, instead of leaving, um, you know, 50 to 30% to of the residue on the top, you know, we might graze it down to, to um, 25 or 20 or something, uh, depending. And then, um, and then if we do have to cultivate to create some tilth, then we just do minimum, minimum tillage um, with as little passes as we need to, to get that crop established. Um, and we've done a little bit of strip tillage as well, which was very successful, but this season we didn't do it simply because the paddocks were so wet. We, um, we just needed to dry things out. So we actually did some tillage to uh, dry the paddock out so we get them planted on time. And do you ever see any allopathic effects on your place, David? No, I, not like some people have. Um, in saying that, barley and oats are probably two that are um, most prone, and I don't grow a lot of barley up or haven't until recently. Um, but no, I haven't. Um, I tend to probably terminate a little bit earlier than some people. Um, you know, a lot of people are now drilling on the green. And um, so I tend to give us a wee bit of a patch where um, we have terminated and those plants have died down a bit more. A um, couple of reasons there. Two, one is I, I think just having that breaking down and maybe a little bit more UV helping to remove some of the, um, some of the inoculum and bacteria and fungi that are sitting there, which potentially could be um, a problem in the following crop. Um, but you know, there's there's plenty of people out there having uh, very good success drilling in the on the green. So um, yeah, I think it's something we'll try uh, going into the future a little bit more and um, experiment. And yeah, maybe we will see some bit more aliopathic uh, effects if we uh, do decide to go uh, drilling a bit more greener. Are you finding more people coming and asking you questions, David, out in the community? Being someone who is rather, you know. Um, I guess you could say in the spotlight, you've been, you know, you're pretty well known in the industry. Are you finding more people coming and asking you about some different techniques? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of people, um, yeah, want to know the way in which you do it. Um, and it's quite good when it's a farmer asking you that. Um, you know, I even had our bank manager say the other day, can you come and talk to a couple of my clients? They need to change. So, you know, he, you know, he can see that their systems aren't um, what they need to be. And um, so, yeah, we've got to do that. So, yeah, no, I think people are very interested. They, it's, it's a funny situation where I'm, I, think, I think half the farmers are interested, and, but quite often they don't want to be known to be interested. <laughs> so they're sort of in the background there or, and just, you know, asking you questions on, you know, when they see you in private. Um, but, you know, what, what they'd learn, those people, if they came to a field day or, or something would um, just supercharge their their ability to move forward, and I've just got to get over that little bit of a stigma that you know this isn't about um, you know as you said dreadlocks and sandals. It's um, <laughs> you know this, this is this is where the mainstream's going to go, and you know I, I think I think we're already heading there to be honest. I think we've made quite a bit of progress in the last three years of um, 
you know, this type of approach of, you know, what can we do on less becoming more of a mainstream approach to, to farming. Do you think there's market opportunities with this kind of, not just the practices, but like it's a hell of a story? Well, there obviously is because some of these multinational companies are saying we want 50% of our production by 2030 or 25. So obviously they see some value in it. The challenge we've got as farmers is making sure that value gets to the farmer. So, you know, it's it's fine saying um, Nestle are going to do um, have regenerative ag for 50% of their inputs or, or production. Um, but if that doesn't get back to the farmer, then that hasn't that hasn't achieved what we need to achieve because you know sometimes these approaches do they can take a bit more time or a bit more capital, and that's why we need the premium. So I think it's really crucial that we need as farmers, we need to make sure we sit down with the end users and the end buyers and say, look, this is great, but how does the system allow that value to get back to the farmer? Because, um, you know, whether you're in conventional farming or, or regen farming, you know, the, the margins seem to be getting smaller and smaller. And, um, and yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a, probably a, a global food crisis not far around the corner. And these guys need to realise that the um, every farmer you lose um, makes that even worse. So, uh, you know, I, I knew sometime in my lifetime that there would be a time when, um, you know, the farmer was actually really important and food was was king. And I thought I might see it near the end of my lifetime, but um, I think we're starting to see it now, which is, is really quite encouraging. But I think what the public's got to realise is that um, when food becomes king, that's at the expense of something else. And the public's got to just realise what are the other things they're going to have to um, give up on a little bit um, in order to, to eat food. And, you know, after the Second World War, um, 42% of people's incomes were spent on groceries. And, yeah, I think we're down to something like 17% now. And I think that's probably going to start going back up again. And, um, you know, that's, we've got used to cheap food. And now we don't have the resources or we're having weather events, which is making that really difficult to, to manage. So that's the reality of the world we live in now. And we've now got seven, nearly eight billion people to feed. So, you know, food's going to become uh, quite quickly, I think, very, uh, very important to society. I've heard quite a bit recently that there really is no such thing as cheap food. Oh, exactly. You know, and, and you talk about um, farm subsidies. Farm subsidies is simply a a mechanism for cheap cheapening food so you know that's the that's that's the way it's been for a number of years but i think the subsidies are struggling to keep up with the the cost of food production these days so yeah look i think the day of of cheap food maybe maybe um gone you know peak peak cheap food i guess you could say might have passed and um for a number of reasons you know input costs are going up but the amount of um, weather events we're having uh, around the world is you know it's having quite an impact on um you know look at uh pakistan the other day you know a, a big producer of wheat and half the country was underwater mm. um so yeah they're having those sorts of uh, events are having a pretty big impact on the on the global marketplace i know if, uh, if i stand in my consumer shoes david and and i saw your product on the shelf and it was let's say 50 percent dearer for me that's not that's not expensive food. That's that's valuing. That's high value. Like it's not just a feel good. Oh yeah, regenerative. Because I actually 
you know, I'm concerned that it may turn into a, you know, another version of greenwashing, but you, what you're what you're explaining and through describing your systems, your food is, you know, it's, if we, we can either spend money on food or spend money on healthcare. I don't know which one I'd rather spend money on. What do we do for the listeners who are in the arable space and for the most part are sort of subject to commodity markets? Is there any room or any possibilities for farmers to be creating brand new markets for, um, you know, perhaps somewhere in the middle ground of between, let's say, farmers markets or at home mills and the big giants of of the the, the globe? Yeah, it's an interesting one because that off farm marketing approach is takes a huge amount of work, um, but it, it's it's pretty rewarding too, you know, not just from a financial point of view, but a, a personal point of view, I think, you know, to build your own brand and, and understand, um, you know, what it takes to achieve that is, is quite empowering, I think. Um, I think what farmers need to do is, uh, at the moment, you know, we, we're very siloed in what happens on our farm and, and you know, the, the load of grain goes out the gate this morning on the truck and that's all we know, it went somewhere to, something happened to it. You know, we need to understand the whole process of what's happening along that value chain. So that's probably the, the first step. If someone wants to, um, you know, do something different and, and see what the value opportunities are, is look at that value chain and look at where along the value chain, you know, can, are there opportunities for you as a farmer to add some value? Um, and, you know, if you get the right people, it might simply be in the story and the way in which you produce. Um, but you know, quite often you need to find a like-minded person along the value chain who who wants that needs that story as well. Whereas the you know the very large companies that are um, you know whether it's the flour mills or whatever you know they're they're, they're feeding the, the bulk of the people. They're not too worried about the story. Um, so it's it's about going out talking with people and finding out who the people are who are looking for um, that connection essentially to their food because because it's about the story. It rings about the story of the food. And, um, you know, the story starts with you as a farmer. So, you know, you've got a really a good opportunity to um, start saying, well, you know, this is, a, this is where it starts and, and create that story all the way through the value chain. Do you think that could bring forward the possibility of perhaps us using more New Zealand, like particularly grains? Because a lot of people are working up to just how much of our grain is or how little of it is actually used here in New Zealand how do we how do we get a, a focus back on New Zealand grains yeah it's um you know I think particularly in the North Island I've been quite surprised just how much of the North Island um grain and, and flour essentially comes from Australia or other countries um so you know it's about providence it's about education um, you know, I think about you just talking about it and saying, well, yeah, look, are you aware um, just how much food in general we import into New Zealand? You know, we often talk about the fact we feed, uh, you know, 30 or 40 billion, uh, million people around the world. But that's only on a certain number of products, you know, where it's um, dairy or sheep and beef and, and, and kiwi fruit and some of the major ones. But we import a lot of food, which could be, um, we could substitute for New Zealand um, produced food and that's one of the downsides I guess of uh, these free trade agreements 
you know, we have to give it, have free trade for these countries. And uh, even when we said we wanted to um, be self-sufficient in um, grain for New Zealand, milling grain, um, we got told off because we were anti-free trade in saying that, which is, you know, you know where are we? And if, if our free trade agreements mean we can't even say that we want to be self-sufficient, um, that's, to me, that's a pretty uh, sad situation to be in. Is it possible, David, to build carbon levels while producing arable seed crops? Yeah, it is. So we're a part of a long-term program with plant food. And um, on the, so we go back to exactly the same spot every seven years. And uh, we're slowly building carbon. Um, it is slow. And it's probably what you'd expect in an arable system. You know, we do grow arable crops, annual crops. And we have to get those annual crops into the ground. But... Um, yeah, some of the paddock, like we're doing these um, carbon or, or organic matter numbers with our soil tests at the moment. And some of the paddocks have really surprised me. They've obviously built carbon up quite quickly. So I think now we're doing the cover, cover crops, we may see a, a more of a jump in the um, increase in carbon. Whereas previously when we were just doing residues back into the ground, um, that was probably a very slow process. And um, so it'll be interesting just to see what the results are in the next uh, five to 10 years with those carbon numbers and um, you know, whether that cover crop approach does actually speed them up um, or not. Are you noticing any increases in biodiversity occurring around your farm? Yeah, I think we are. Um, and, and a wide range of stuff. So, you know, soil take soil, for example, the you know, number of earthworms has increased significantly. Even even other, I don't know what they all are, but bugs in the soil, you know, ones that you can visually see, um, they're quite often um, more. And even uh, bird life, you know, this year I've never seen so many swallows flying around everywhere. You know, and they're obviously eating insects, so there's a whole pile more insects floating around. Um, so, you know, I guess biodiversity breeds more biodiversity. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we have. And... Um, and that's been really nice to see as well. Um, I guess the only challenge we've got is, is the, the birds that do eat the crops we grow. We've probably got more of them around as well, so they're a bit of a, <laughs> a, bit of a pest. But, um, but you know, I guess you've got to, everyone's got to eat something. Yeah, it's a really great fright. Yeah, everyone's got to eat something. What has the uptake been like with your family? Because I, I get that, and for the listeners, you're a multi-generational farm, yes? Yeah, yeah, we're um, on third generation on here, so we've been here about 90 years. Um, and But there's a connection back to the original settlers, which is really nice. So that's, and I think that's quite, well, to me, that's quite important. You know, it, it's that whole, um, just a custodian, essentially, of the land. So it hasn't been too bad. My father was, um, he was a bit the same. He sort of looked after the soil as best he could with the tools that he had as well. Um, and but in saying that, you know, he hasn't agreed with everything that I've done, <laughs> as, a, as a number of um, people will have in their own family businesses. It's you know, sometimes those family businesses aren't perfect, but it, but in general, no, there's been pretty good acceptance. And I think the easiest way to um, achieve that is by having the results come through. So, you know, if you can demonstrate that, yep, this did work, and here's the reason, here's the results with where it's yield or whatever it is. Um, then, uh, yeah, that's quite often the, the best way to um, demonstrate that you're on the right track. Now, David, I, I haven't known you uh, 
for very long, probably what five, six years, something like that. But I, I really didn't know you before you started this journey of yours. Has there been any changes on a personal level going, let's say, on your own path and doing things not just differently, but something that is resonant with you and because you want to do it? Um, I guess I've always been on this path for quite a while, but early on, because you didn't know anyone else was on the same path, you just sort of you know kept to yourself a little bit and um, probably didn't talk about it much, um, as a lot of people will um, resilient uh, will um, recognise in, in their own journey. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I've always been that way inclined. I guess the other thing was that when I was quite young, I learned the lesson of understanding data and knowledge very early on and how powerful it was. Um, so that sort of got me involved in research and you know, doing trials and understanding what happens. And, and then through that, obviously, um, I've been involved in research most of my life since then, really. And that's been quite good in that it's given us a really good base of if you're going to try something, how to set it up and how to do it so that you actually get a, an answer out of it. Um, so, you know, but like most farms, you know, we've got multiple trials. Some are actually by professional trials by companies, but even just as a farmer, I'm always doing um, a strip here or a strip there or something that's different to see if it might work or might not. And I think that's fantastic. That's, that's how you really learn. If you don't try, you'll never know, I guess is the, the approach. So, yeah, I've always been inclined to have a crack and try something. If, and, uh, and often that's proven that it was right. And then you, you expand it and do it on a whole paddock. And then eventually it just becomes part of your standard operation system. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess I've always had that inclination to, you know, try, some, try stuff out and find out why it works and if it does... Um, and, and what's so good now is that previously when I did that, I didn't have anyone to tell. <laughs> Whereas now I can go to forums and field days, you can share it with everyone, which is fantastic because that's what you want. You want other people to know um, the successes that you've had or, and the failures as well. So, you know, I think that's where the whole regen ag and, you know, if, if, if nothing else came out of it, just the fact that farmers knew that they could share information with other farmers alone is is worth gold really do you enjoy what you do david yeah no i do um there's always a challenge there's always uh something new around the corner um unfortunately a lot of the new stuff with going around the corner of regulation based and very um authority driven which uh which is a bit i don't probably like but um but in saying that, you know, just this morning, I've had a couple of people from MPI here sort of educating them about the arable industry and the seed industry. You know, and if you don't teach people or get them to understand, then you can't expect them to make the right decision. So, you know, I think part of what I do is probably just around that, you know, helping to educate people who often have never been on a farm, but actually work for some of our government agencies. And, you know, you think someone at MPI would have spent a lot of time on a farm. But, uh, you know, quite often they come out and it's the first time on the farm. They've done their studies and all, but they haven't had that practical exposure to what's, what truly happens on farms. So 
I think that sort of work is really important because, you know, if we want them to understand, you know, we have to show and demonstrate to them what actually does happen so they do start to make the right decisions further down the track. And what would you say, Dave, to someone who's perhaps feeling the crunch a little bit with, you know, all the prices going up, they're sceptical about all this waffle, you know, regen, <laughs> call it waffle, hype, whatever you want to call it. You know, they're, they're a bit nervous. What would you say to someone like that? Yeah, look, I, I think you need to understand, you know, what, what your crop needs. You know, if, if we're going to pull back on, let's say, inputs, you're going to say, well, look, I'm, you know, these costs are getting way out there. What can I pull back on? So it's understanding, you know, what does a crop need and where, where the true sources of nutrient are for the crop if it's nutrient that you're going to pull back on. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of information out there now around um, nitrogen and, and there's some new tests that are out, which gives us a lot more understanding of the potential nitrogen that will come through during the season. It's, it's having the, I guess, the trust that that information is correct and that those numbers are going to come through and deliver for your crop. So, you know, my, I guess the advice I'd, I'd give is try a patch. You know, you don't have to do your paddock. Do a, a couple of strips up your paddock, um, put a reduced amount on, see if it makes a difference. You know, we talked about right at the beginning about confidence. And it is actually really hard to, to build that confidence when you're starting from having not tried something before. You know, the best way you do it is you, you try it, build the confidence, and then the confidence grows. So, but you do have to start somewhere. Yeah, if you can if you can find a something that's reasonably easy to do, try it, find out the result, and then um, next year expand it a bit more. David Burkett, thank you so much for your time. I just want to acknowledge the heck out of you and thank you really for your contribution to Quorum Sense right from the beginning. I'll you know never forget the time we spent you know sitting on the board together and um, all the impact that you've made in the across the whole industry really the whole arable industry. Um, and and to the quorum sense and its wider community, the uh, the difference that you made, mate, will not be short lived. It'll continue on for a long time. So thank you today for sitting with me for an hour and sharing your wisdom and sharing your experience. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, look, thanks, Jono. Um, it's been great. I've really enjoyed the journey, and you know, I think we've actually achieved quite a lot. We've seen a lot of change, and I think we'll continue to see change as well. So you know, it's it's been great to be part of a, a great team like Coral Sense to achieve some of these things. I think it's been uh, absolutely fantastic. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.